You guys can be seated. So we're going to continue to go through the continuation of Acts chapter 2, Ephesians 2, what a healthy community looks like, and how we make the choice to walk in our calling. Ultimately, I believe that's what our call is this year. And one of the ways we do that is by breaking bread. One of the ways we do that is by the apostles' teaching, prayer and worship, and shared participation and resources of the congregation. But today I want to look at breaking bread because whether you know it or not, God was a foodie. He enjoyed some table fellowship. He, throughout the Bible, constantly is inviting people to a table, to a garden, to a meal. He would have had probably the greatest Yelp reviews out there if he was walking the earth today. In Genesis, we see that God invites Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of life. He commands them not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So ultimately, the conflict that we find ourselves, everybody in this room, I believe, looking around has read the book of Genesis, understands the fall of man, understands exactly what happened, is they had an invitation to eat of life. Only God can give you life. We can't give life. God is the one who brings forth life. God is the one who perfected life. He was the one who spoke life into existence. But we can choose whether we eat a meal with God or we dine with the devil. Unfortunately, our forefathers made the decision to dine with the devil. They decided that they weren't going to accept the life, the invitation that God had given them, and they were going to be persuaded. Unfortunately for all of us, we look back and it's like, hey, they had the opportunity to go to Frida's down in the Paseo District, some of the best empanadas that are out there, and for whatever reason, they chose McDonald's fries. I don't understand it, but they did. Now, maybe they were salt, maybe they were just, they, they were missing some sodium content in them, but the Bible doesn't clearly tell us, so it'd be pure speculation. But they had the opportunity to dine with the greatest being that ever will be, that ever was, and they chose a serpent. Mm. But yet Psalm 34 tells us to taste and see that the Lord is good. So all of our life at this point in time is in a McDonald's type of environment. We don't have the garden around us. We're trying to get back to the garden. Even the picture of Jesus and the resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is a foreshadow of the garden to come. A new temple One that's not made of bricks and stones, but it's made of flesh and bones. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Genesis 3. We see that in Genesis chapters 2 and 3 that God, Yahweh, is inviting humanity to taste and see that the Lord is good. That by tasting and eating of the tree of life, they would actually have eternal life. In Genesis 3.22, it says, Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us. This is right after they had eaten of the forbidden tree. They had had the forbidden meal that God had instructed them not. They're knowing of good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. See, God invited us to be co-heirs, but he did not invite us to be gods. This is part of the wrestle that all of us have in our life. Some of it, it might be fiscally with your money. 
you're your own God, you're your own pro- provider. Some people, a lot of people nowadays, it's your stomach, which is meals, sustenance, food. And that's the wrestle we have. Is God's instruction, is God's provision, is God's spirit more prevalent in our life than our own spirit is prevalent in our life? Now, there is a garden in exile as well. We talked about that last week in Jeremiah 29. When a lot of people think that you should pack up, that you should run away, that you should try to conquer the Babylons in your life. And yes, that, that's applicable to whether it's a social system, like a government system, or it's actual Babylons in your life. It might be persons, it might be things, it might be spiritual But God doesn't tell us to conquer the Babylons in our life. He says that we are to bless everything through him. Plant a garden, have kids, live life, be merry. In the book of Exodus, we see that God once again invites us to co-heir with him. Kingdom of priests, holy nation. This is immediately after they have the Red Sea moment. So they go from being in bondage. Now, Adam and Eve were in bondage. They were enslaved by the decision they made. They had the wrong dinner plans that night. Those dinner plans caused them to be enslaved to their sin and be excommunicated from the presence of God and holiness in the garden. Well, we see the Israelites in the book of of Exodus in the same exact spot. The same exact spot. They're in bondage in Egypt. There is all kinds of oppression on top of them. God provides a way out. They go through the sea, and he says, I want to make you a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And while Moses went up to God, the Lord had called out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagle's wing and brought you out to myself. Now therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Exodus 19, 3 through 6. Rest assured, none of us are going to keep our promises. Rest assured, none of us are going to be able to be perfect. But God always keeps his covenant. He always keeps his promises. And the good thing about God is that God's constantly living, moving, working in your life, in the city around you, in the lives of others. He's always there. Most of the time we don't see him. Most of the time we don't look for him. But when we do, the presence of the Lord is just as great as anything you will ever experience in this entire life. Now, some of you in this world, you can think of euphoric moments in your life. You can think of some of the greatest elements of your marriage or having children or winning a baseball game or whatever it is. But when the presence of God comes upon you and you are starting to walk in the calling of God, it's unlike anything you've ever experienced. If you can get to a point in your life where you are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation and you're walking in that on a regular basis, everything else of the world falls apart. You're not worried about having McDonald's because every day you're living fast. It's the best of the best. And the most beautiful thing about it in your life spiritually is that all it costs you is to submit and seek. Submit and seek. If you submit yourself to the voice of the Lord and you seek after the Lord, he will come to you. Yet God has invited us over and over and over to keep 
his covenant and to partner with him throughout those covenants. But how many times throughout the scripture have our forefathers made allegiances with other people? How many times throughout the scriptures have they chosen repeatedly to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and forsake the tree of life? It's repeated throughout scripture. In fact, it's almost schizophrenic because it's one generation does something great, immediately the other generation does something wrong. They repent, a generation comes and does something great, they do something wrong. It's always back and forth with a yo-yo, which tells you throughout time, the same wrestles you have right now in your life with God, the same wrestles you have, it's never going to go away. Because every single person has been wrestling with the covenants, with the promises, and walking in a manner that is holy. But yet, we face that choice every day. We face the choice on whether we're going to serve God or we are going to elevate ourselves as our God. Now, as we continue through the Bible, we look in the book of Leviticus in chapter 3, 23, and in Deuteronomy 16, that we then see most people in this room know God established Moedim, or feasts. There's that same motif. God is inviting you to dine with him. God is inviting you to come to the table. These are family gatherings. If God is your father, you are coming to his table for a Sunday brunch, for a Saturday dinner. It's a family gathering. And so, some of you in this room might have broken families, and you're like, I do not go to my family gatherings. Well, your father's not broken. Your heavenly father is not broken. So if your heavenly father's not broken and you don't go to your family gatherings with your immediate family, then you have gatherings you can go to that are not broken by the things that you've done or the relationships you've had or the missteps that you've had. Now, some of you have amazing families. You like to dine together all the time. And so this is just an extension of this. Not only are you practicing it with your earthly family, but your heavenly father has called all of the Hebrews, all of the Israelites to these family gatherings throughout the year. At every single family gathering we have, there's always some sort of food. There just is. Because it's part of the fellowship of brothers and sisters. It's part of the covenant. It's part of how you engage in that relationship with the Lord. This is exactly what the body of Christ should look like. A family coming together for meals, gatherings, fellowship, sharing together, and having each other's backs. Unfortunately, sometimes throughout the different elements of Christianity, we see that division, lack of speaking to each other, also reflects some of our modern family gatherings. But we still have the choice. We have the choice whether we show up to the family gathering and eat the meal or whether we're the ones who doesn't show up. God invites us to show up when people don't show up. God invites us to build his church and his community. This is how the family should work. We should be coming together and rejoicing, not just at the feast days, not just at the Sabbath gatherings, but throughout every day that we can. Why? Because we're all supposed to be a kingdom of priests. We're supposed to be a holy nation. We're not just supposed to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation when we walk through the door on Saturday. There's no caveat in the contract here. I looked, even in all the versions, even in the Passion version, there is no caveat that says only on Saturdays we're supposed to be a family. 
only on Saturdays are we supposed to rejoice and have fellowship with each other. No, we're supposed to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, which means whether you're in your marketplace at your business, whether you're at the grocery store, wherever you're at, you are to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Yet Israel was unfaithful to the covenant. In 2 Kings 21, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. How many of you would allow a senior pastor to be 12 years old? Raise your hand. Just a fun, there's no right or wrong answer. I just want to know your opinion. There's no, nobody? Nobody would let a 12-year-old be a senior pastor. Okay. He was the king. He was the king. And he reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name, I'm not, it was H. I'm not even going to try to go there. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord dispossessed before the sons of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah's father had destroyed, and he erected altars of Baal and made Asherah as Ahab king of Israel had done and worshipped all the hosts of heavens and served him. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. For he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his son pass through fire, practice witchcraft, Is it getting any better? Like, at first, it's like, wait a second, hold on. He created altars. He destroyed all kinds of things that the Lord told him to. And they're like, by the way, he also did witchcraft. He did divination, and he dealt with mediums and spirits. Hmm. So that actually should probably make you feel better sitting in your seat. Because I'm guessing that nobody in this room is openly practicing witchcraft or openly building altars to other gods. Uh, if you are, then uh, come see me after service um, because we have a serious conversation to have. They rebelled against God. They rebelled against the family rules. They rebelled against the worship. Everything was perverted. It was basically like somebody who said to their father and mother, I no longer want anything to do with anything that is you, your customs, your traditions, your name, anything. They decided to eat with the devil again, even though they had been invited in Jerusalem to meet and eat with the Lord. How many times in our life do we come up against the very the very lighthearted elements of we're faced with a decision in our life and we have one good and one bad testimony in our ear. The old school cartoon devil and the little angel and they're all fighting for each other and then one has the little spinning stars over their head because they're dizzy and you have to wrestle with who you are going to be in that moment. And of course, we like to say, well, the devil made you do it. But no, it was you who wrestled with the decisions you made, and you chose whether you went to dinner with God or you went to dinner with the devil. In every area of your life, you get to choose. You chose whether you went over to the devil's house for dinner or you went over to God's. And you can say, well, it was nice and it was shiny, and his name was Satan. It sounded French. And no, you made the decision to go against God. You made the decision to dine with the devil in that moment. Now, thankfully, we're not the first people who have fallen there. We're not the first people who have made that decision. It is literally the original sin. The original sin of not tending the garden, making the wrong dinner plans with the wrong people, and eating the wrong food. It's the original sin. 
And yet, all throughout history, all throughout the terms of Israel, all throughout how all of those things have ever cooperated with our behavior, we still cycle. There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. But then throughout all of that cycle, God came to the prophet Jeremiah. Now, the prophet Jeremiah came and he spoke when Israel was in exile in Babylon. Last week, we went through chapter 29, and we talked about uh, war is not our future. That when we're in an exile, when we're in a Babylon, when we're in a situation, God has called us to plant gardens, to have babies, to get married, to do something. Why? Because God is a cultivator. He cultivates life. The adversary tries to take life. Now, Jeremiah 31 comes in the midst of all of Israel's rebellion in Babylon. They weren't partaking in the feasts and the festivals on a regular basis. They weren't showing up to to Yahweh's house on Sunday for dinner. Maybe it was Saturday for dinner. I don't know. But they weren't showing up on the times that they had, and they were rebelling in a foreign land. And yet Jeremiah, the prophet to Israel, comes in chapter 31 with a promise. In 31 verse 27, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that as I have watched over them to pluck them up and break down, to overthrow, to destroy, and to bring harm. So I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days they shall no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats sour grapes, his teeth shall be set on edge. What kind of promise is that? Oh, the promise that something is changing. The promise that you are going to be responsible for the decisions that you make and you will have an opportunity to make those decisions once and for all yourself. Which fruit do you eat? How do you interact? Then it says, one of my favorite parts, I think God doesn't do anything by coincidence. So you have Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Going all the way back to their original slavery and to the start and the establishment of a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. That I bring, bro, brought them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, not on stone anymore, on heart, on flesh. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Jeremiah tells us of a great promise. You have to remember in the time by which Jeremiah is saying this, they only know one thing. They only know the repeated pattern of we came out of Egypt, we were blessed, we weren't blessed, we were blessed, we weren't blessed, we were blessed, we weren't blessed, we made good decisions, made bad decisions, good decisions, bad decisions, whatever was there. And I'm having 
a hard time not believing my own opinion. When you're in a situation where you're not blessed, when you're in exile, you know, again, we talked last week about we don't know what it's like to be in exile. This isn't exile. We have a lot of freedom here. This isn't Babylon. This isn't even Rome like it was in the first century. We don't know what that feels like. We don't know what it feels like to have somebody knocking on our door and basically threatening us for money. They just do it via mail. They're non-confrontational that way. So that is not a defund the IRS or a political statement. It's live stream. I just got to make sure I cover all bases. I don't want to go into exile or Babylon, but we don't know what that feels like. And so Jeremiah is coming to a people who have no idea that there's anything better. They don't fully understand, I believe, in this time just how magnificent the birth of Christ is going to be how it's going to revolutionize the opportunity for them in their life. They just see patterns of behavior. They still have, at that time, the stone. The stone was what they had. They had the law on the stone. But Jeremiah says there's coming a day where that law will actually be written here, and the forgiveness and the washing of your sins will be done by the Lord. It's a renewed covenant. Then God came. Boom. Yeshua walked amongst us, breaking bread with people. Yeshua liked to eat. Luke 24, 40 through 43. I'm just going to give these as reference for you guys to go and look and go through it if you want to do later. I'm not going to spend all my time on that today. But Luke 24, 40 through 43, Jesus ate. Luke eleven thirty-eight, Jesus ate. I think Luke was probably... He was probably the dining club partner of Jesus at that point in time because Luke records an awful lot of the times when Jesus ate. Either that or Luke was also a foodie. And so he was like, I'm keeping the reviews so that, you know, we can make sure that everybody in Samaria knows that, like, this is the place where you want to go get some fish. Mark 2, 15. Luke 7 through 36. Matthew 26, 26. Luke, again, Matthew eleven nineteen, John 21, 12. John snuck in there with one. John got a dinner date with, with Yeshua as well. But Jesus probably had the greatest amount of wine and bread rewards points stored up because he loved to eat with people. He loved to eat with people who weren't even like himself. You know, how many times in our little corner of Christianity do we say, I'm not sure I want to go eat with these people because I don't know, like, I don't know if they are going to eat shellfish in front of me or I don't know if they're going to do this. I, I don't see that as a worry that Jesus had. Uh, the tax collector, uh, I'm pretty sure those people weren't walking around doing all the things Jesus would have thought was cool. If you look at those areas, and again, I love the chosen. I didn't love the chosen. It took me a long time. Most of the time, your Christian television shows are not really well produced. You can easily just say, oh, this was influenced by Catholicism, or this is just a Protestant, or I'm not sure what happened with Left Behind. But either way, the chosen is actually fairly balanced. And so when you see the culture and you see them interact, it's very unique to see a character like Matthew, who's almost borderline autistic, and yet he is operating in a way with Yeshua is just very kind and gentle. And you see Yeshua in that time frame is kind of a very 
right brain person. He's just loving and caring. And here's Matthew who's like counting and very stiff and intense. And it starts to bring to life more than just the text. The fact that these were real people doing real life together. Jesus liked to dine with people because it was through that he could create a covenant. It was even more impactful. If you look at the time where they had the fishes and the loaves, why is the fishes and the loaves even important? Why? Because Jesus did a miracle? There are miracles all over the New Testament of what Jesus did. I personally think if you're looking at some of the miracles Jesus did, when he sees a demon and he sees a demon, he's like, get out and go. Or he raises somebody from the dead to life. Isn't that, that's like, okay, if we're going to have five bullet points to prove that this dude is awesome, those are the ones. It's not that he took bread and somehow multiplied it. But it's important because one of the greatest messages Yeshua ever gave also included the multiplication of bread and fishes. They ate together. They dined together. They had picnics in the park together. Because through that time, there is intimacy with the Lord. John 6, 53-59 While Jesus was teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum, Yeshua said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread of which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Once again, Jesus is referencing back to the manna that fell in the wilderness. This isn't the same bread that your fathers ate. And then still passed away. This is the bread that also comes from heaven, referencing back to the manna. But this will give you life everlasting. Well, where did we hear about eating and getting everlasting life? Oh, right, in the garden with the tree of life. Hmm, interesting. Now, Jesus was openly teaching this. You would have to think that this would be massively heretical at that time. Because again, it's a system, it's a cycle that's going on. And here he is saying, well, it's not just the bread that came to you in the wilderness that God provided. It's not just the bread that you eat on Erev Shabbat for Kiddush. It's not just your normal customs. This is different. It was radical for that time. Jesus was telling people and starting the narrative at that time that he is the person that came, Jeremiah prophesied about. On the evening before his death, Jesus and his disciples were in an upper room and he invited his disciples to receive life through the bread and the wine. A lot of families in this church, every Friday night you bless the bread, you bless the wine. And yet Jesus was going through this with his disciple. Some believe it was a Passover Seder. Some believe it was the night before Passover. I think that can be virtually irrelevant at this point in time. You can make good arguments for both of them. What's relevant there at that time is the fact that Jesus once again fulfilled commandments, 
prophets, everything. The prophet said something new is going to happen. Some new one is going to come. Something is going to happen. And here Jesus sits in an upper room with the most intimate of people, including somebody that he already knew was going to betray him. And he did exactly what he knew he had to do. It was at that time in, in the book of Luke that it's recorded that God invited all humanity away back to the garden through a meal, through bread and wine. And in our corner of Christianity, we should know this because every Friday, most of your homes have bread and wine. Most of your houses on Friday, every week we practice this concept. But how many of us use Friday night as just a ritual? Well, Jews on Friday night will come and they'll do Kiddush and they'll say the blessings and all of that. How many of us on Friday night remember that Yeshua is the bread of life? How many of us remember when we're doing the blessings? And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the traditional blessings, because they're not. They're beautiful. But how many of us liken both what they did in the early days to also what Jesus did for you every Friday night with your children? Because... I've been in this little corner of Christianity since 2007, and one thing I can tell you is that my kids are really good at doing the Hebrew blessings over bread and wine. But when it comes to understanding the Lord's Supper, which is just almost identical in the concepts of what they're doing, it's not there. The bread and the wine on its own cannot offer you eternal life. The elements of the bread and the wine, just because you came to the meal, doesn't offer you eternal life. It is the power of which God put through the remembrance of what he did that he can give you eternal life. Yet every Sunday in some churches, and once a month in some churches, they get the little wafers out, they get the little cups out, Some of them have the big wafers. Some of them have the little tiny bread. Some of them downtown have been in a couple of them. They still break out a big old loaf and a cup, and you walk up and you dip and you take. They'll do the sacraments or communion on a regular basis in their church. How many of them do that in remembrance of the Lord? I would say all. My personal experience, every single person. There's a holiness. There's a reverence that's given in the church to that remembrance of Christ. And yet on Friday nights, do we give the same remembrance of Jesus? Not that it's a holy and set-apart day. That's the whole reason why you're keeping the Sabbath. That's why you're doing the blessings. You're setting apart the day that's there. But how many of you, when you break the bread and you drink the wine on Friday night, you remember Jesus and the commandment and the fact that he fulfilled the prophets and the fact that now you had an invitation back to an eternal life meal. That is the greatest happy meal that has ever existed. You will never find a better toy. You have eternal life. If you eat this, this is what you get. Jesus was doing the intent of his father, providing a way back when we should have never needed a way back. And he did so over a meal. With his disciples. So whether it's on Friday evening that you guys break the bread and drink the wine, or whether it's once a year at Passover, whether it's every Sunday in a church that you attend, whether it's once a month, 
Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, 23, 25 says, For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Now, I understand there's theologies. I understand there's history. I understand those things. As often as you do these things in remembrance of me. That could be Pesach. That could be every Friday night. If your family does communion once a week, as often as you do these things, do them in remembrance of me. It doesn't say that you have to do it every Sunday. It doesn't say that you have to do it every Friday. It doesn't give those commandments. But Paul tells us, if you're going to do it, remember what God gave you. Remember the gift you have. And if you're a parent in this corner of Christianity, it's more important now than ever before to make sure that you're doing it in remembrance of the blood sacrifice of Yeshua. Because there is no other way that you will come to the Father except through Yeshua. It's not through the lighting of the candles. It's not through the customs. Those are beautiful in your home. But as often as you drink, do it in remembrance of the blood that was shed so that you could be washed white as snow. Your customs and your family's traditions are, are, are beautiful. What you do in your home is your intimacy with the Lord. You're training up your children. You're perfecting your marriage together. You're on the journey closer to God. But every time you break bread on Friday night, Sunday, whenever it is, are you doing it in remembrance of him? Are you doing it because this is what we do? Because if you're doing it in remembrance of him, fantastic. If you're just doing it because that's what we do, then... You're missing the whole entire point. We should be training our children to remember that the only reason why we have hope, the only reason why we have life, the only reason is because we remember him. And through that, you have hope. As Brent has continued to go through the Revelation study, and he'll be back next week from his travels and going back through that, I'm going to steal a little bit of his thunder because I'm going to jump out in front of him today. Not only does God work in the past, not only does God interweave that to the present beautifully for his glory, but God also works through the future. From the beginning to the end, God is perfect. The book of Revelation in chapter 22 tells it that those in Messiah will have access to the tree of life in the future. This opens Pandora's box on whether Revelation is some sort of future thing that's coming, like some doom and gloom text. Obviously, this church doesn't believe that. That's why Brent's going through the series that he is. It's to teach you to become victors, not to become victims. It's to teach you to understand the power and the hope and the promises God's given you, rather than teaching you to build a nuclear fallout shelter under the ground. It's how you can be God's victors in this kingdom, in this season, at this time. It's not just some sci-fi movie that's coming. But this opens up Pandora's box on whether it's a future text or a historical text. Honestly, 
I don't think it really matters when it comes to these specific verses. Because it could be either. It could be a future promise, or it could be something that's already happened, or it could be something that happens every single day. And so that's the beauty of God's word. Revelation 19.9 tells us, Blessed are those who are invited to the family gathering in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are those. And we also know that when they went out to prepare, people were too busy to and fro. But blessed are those who are invited. Blessed. The covenantal promises of God are interwoven throughout Scripture with family gatherings, meals, supper, times of breaking bread. So when you break bread with people this week, when you break bread with your family, do you do it because we're hungry and we just need to get it done? We've got baseball practice or soccer practice or I have an appointment for work. I have this or I have that. And you're running to and fro. Say, oh, I remember in the 50s when the family sat down and ate. They still did it somewhat in the 80s. I was around for some of those. Now, some of that was because I had to sit at the table for days at end because my mom wouldn't let me get up until I ate my peas. This is why I do believe that uh, the, the fruit that the adversary tried to get them to eat was peas because it's got to be of the devil. But when you sit down with your family this week, your friends, make it different. Make it different. Don't make it just we, we have an obligation to eat tonight or we have an obligation to get through the food or I'm hungry so I'm going to eat. When you have the opportunity to get together with your family and sit down, whether it's lunch or dinner, sit down and talk about Jesus. Have every meal this week in remembrance of him. And I understand he wasn't telling you, hey, when you go out to eat and you get yourself a pot pie, do it in remembrance of me. But no, if you can start taking your family time and your meal time together and you can make it about Jesus, it's no longer once a week. It's no longer seven times a year through the feast cycle. You're creating family habits and family gatherings for your children, for your spouse, that are all about Jesus being your Messiah. That are all about the gifts and the sacrifices that God gave each and every one of you. The verse for this church is that you should walk in your gifts. How are you ever going to know what your gifts are if you don't know the person it says that gave you the gifts before you were ever born? How are you going to know what your gift is supposed to be if your eyes aren't focused on Jesus? How are you ever going to know how to walk in that or how to see it or how to live if it's not Jesus. Because it says your gift was predestined for this time for you that you should walk in it. So if you can't walk in your gift, if you can't make your gatherings about Jesus, if you can't remember him, then you've made your choice. And I know it's hard. I know life gets in the way. But he asked you just to do this in remembrance of me as often as you do it. So if it's only Friday night this week, church, if that's only when you do a sit down with your family with bread and wine, then make that one in remembrance of him. If it's every night, if you can do every night, fantastic. You are an overachiever. I like that. Not every family gets to sit down and eat together. 
But there's a table that was prepared for you before you were born. There's an invitation for you to walk in that calling. So today we're going we're gonna to have a response song. The altar is going to be opened up if you, if you so desire to come and lay down any burdens you have. But every day of your life, God is giving you an, an invitation to come to his family gatherings, to join his family, to walk, and to be an intricate part of the kingdom of priests in a holy nation. I can't do that for you. I can't make that happen for you. You have to make the choice that you're going to walk in that calling. You have to make the choice that you have enough faith that you believe in the promises of God and the gift he's given you. You have to make that choice. I can't do that for you. And so maybe there's somebody in this room who needs to make that choice today. Maybe there's somebody in this room who's just been struggling. Maybe there's somebody in this room who just needs somebody to lay their hand on their shoulder and say, Jesus loves you and I got your back. But we're going to take a couple of minutes. They're going to play a song. And if you've got something you need to lay down before the Lord, if you've got something that you need to be prayed over, I'm going to ask Thomas and Michelle, our prayer team leads, to come over here and stand, stand over here on the side. If you need prayer for something, you can come pray. They'll pray over you. But the altar's open for this time.